everyone, and welcome to Education Checkup. I'm Johnette Magner. We are a weekly podcast here at KTBS that covers what is happening in education in Northwest Louisiana. And we especially like to highlight the many good things that some of you don't always hear about. My co-host for the podcast is Dr. Philip Roseman. Now, he's a well-known cardiologist in Northwest Louisiana, but what you may not know about him is that he has also been a true leader in education reform and improvement across the state. He is the founder of the Alliance for Education, co-founder of the shreveport Bossier Business Alliance for Higher Education, and he received the Distinguished Friend of Education Award from the Louisiana Department of Education, and that was for all of his good work. So, Dr. Roseman, welcome, and I'll let you take it from here and introduce our special guest and our really important topic. Yeah, thank you, Johnette. This is an important topic uh, in education today, and uh, we have, we're lucky to have two real experts that have worked on it for a long time and can give us some great insight. Um, we have today Dr. Barzana White. Um, she's full-time psychologist. She works with Caddo. She's been with Caddo for 26 years, I think before that in Knoxville, Tennessee, if I'm not correct. Yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, she is a coordinator of school climate transformation. I looked at her CV and uh, Barzana, I'll say this about, about you. Uh, what I can tell from that CV is that you are here to make the community a better place. Yes. Uh, that you've worked hard to do that and you're involved in lots of things, a lot of good work uh, that's uh, beyond your job even to the volunteer sector and so we're really thankful for your work and glad you can be here today to kind of share your insights on, on this issue of school bullying, the, in, the issue of, of mental health and students today and all of this kind of come, bubbles up you know, after the pandemic, uh, and it's a good time to talk about uh, how we can uh, do better in those issues. Uh, thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Veronica Douglas, uh, school counselor, uh, a long-time school counselor for University Elementary. Uh, for those who don't know much about the schools, University Elementary is a large school, yes, uh, so he has a lot of she has a lot of work to do, uh, <laughs> I'm sure, every day, and she can give us yes. a kind of perspective of on the ground mm -hmm. in these areas of mental health and, and, and uh, issues of uh, bullying and character education and all those kind of things. One of the things I was interested in about your CV uh, was award, uh, the Governor's Award for Character Education, and you and I have kind of talked about this in the low, low, remote past, uh, but just... Uh, is there still a place for character education? We still, what, what are we doing in order to, to help kids kind of learn about the values that we need to be promoting as a society? Well, you know, I think a lot of times when we think about character education, we really are talking about not only character ed, but uh, the combination of social emotional learning, uh, those skills, executive functioning skills, as well as uh, MTSS or multi-tiered systems of support and PBIS. And those all kind of fall under one umbrella now. And is it important? Absolutely. Because although we're primarily they're at school to teach academics. We also know that academics alone doesn't build a better person. Mm -hmm. And so you need character education if you really want a well-rounded individual when they graduate. Yeah. One of the things that, that I learned as I worked in, in digital wellness is that we think when we teach our kids to be good people, 
that that translates in all environments. And what we're finding is that teaching them how to interact in person doesn't always translate to online interaction, that we've got to actually have character education for that particular environment. Are you finding that as well? Absolutely. Um, when you think about the social media, social media can be wonderful, but it also can be one of our biggest headaches. Um, because I think people, and generally children, not only do they have to navigate that a little bit differently, but they also have to learn that what you say matters. And a lot of them don't think, because they're not standing in front of somebody face to face, that it has the same intensity, or even more so. And so it's kind of this tit for tat, and it goes on and on and on and usually escalates to becoming problematic. Struggles, how does, it, how does this translate into uh, in a school setting in terms of social emotional learning and, and how, how, to take, how to be with each other, character issues, values? How, how do y'all work that in as part of the... What we do, we do have mandates where we teach social-emotional learning lessons. As a matter of fact, our district has purchased a social-emotional learning curriculum um, called Rethink Ed. But also we do have a mandate where we do internet safety lessons with our students as well. And we talk about um, digital citizenship that's, you know, going online, things, appropriate things, inappropriate things, just like Dr. White mentioned, because you're not in person, it still matters what you say and things like that. It gives a digital footprint that follows them. Uh, you know, the pandemic has had an impact. It's, it, and we've, we've heard it on this video cast from others. Uh, and a lot of that impact, it, it, it's academic, but it's also, impact on mental health, mm -hmm. impact on behavior, uh, and those impacts. Can you talk a little bit about how you see this? What, what do you see us needing to do uh, as a community or as a school system or as a school or as a teacher, you know, uh, in this area of, of mental health uh, and... Uh, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Depending on the source, um, we see basically, we have seen basically about a 60% increase in major depressive disorder and anxiety amongst our children. Um, that's really something that is very quite concerning. Um, so we, we talk about, of course, all of the negative things about COVID, but there were some things that were positive that came out. Uh, we had to pivot pretty quickly, number one, and figure mm -hmm. out what we were gonna do. We now have new assessment instruments. We now have um, a way to communicate better with parents. Um, we have internet access. Uh, not only that, I think we have also built some telehealth and some mental health networks that we didn't have. Mm -hmm. So some other capabilities. From a school perspective, I'm always gonna be about prevention because I always think you're gonna spend about 90% of your dollars um, that are gonna be more effective if it's on the front end than if you put it at the back mm -hmm. end putting out fires. Mm -hmm. So that has some, been something that I have advocated for my entire career is, and of course it always becomes the balance in education. You know, How much mental health should we provide and still be an academic learning community? How much character education? How much of this? And you're always going to have people that think you should do one of more or something else and it's always you know kind of a, a balancing game um, because there's only so many hours in the day yeah you know we had um, someone from juvenile justice uh, come visit and we had a video cast and talk and interview with them and they they talked about this prevention issue and the difference between 
having a child uh, go through the entire system of juvenile justice and what that entailed, how long that took, and all of that to get help versus a nonprofit group that focuses on that uh, or a school that focuses on that and trying to prevent uh, those issues from ever occurring and the difference in cost and the difference in effectiveness you know was just just monumental are you seeing uh, are you seeing or feeling that that uh, uh, the issues of depression and and then how do you deal with it on a on a school basis well on on the school basis with trying to um, put preventive measures in we try to implement our social emotional learning curriculum um, my goal is most of the time for the students i serve is to teach empathy and when students can learn about empathy learn how to feel and understand how others feel that would lessen their interactions that they have where they have conflict with their peers but at the campus where we are at university we also have volunteers for youth justice we have a calming studio we teach um, conflict resolutions so we do have various lessons and preventive measures that we put in place however we do have those situations where we're having to provide threat assessments whether it be self-harming to, for the students self-harming or self-harming to others. So we're seeing a higher prevalence now more than we've seen in the last 10 years, which is, you know, um, just very different. You know, one, one thing that COVID forced us to do was to isolate. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. one of the things I've ta I talked when I taught at Louisiana Tech that mm -hmm. I talked a lot about was we had we developed routines that lasted long enough that when COVID was some of those sanctions or rules were lifted, mm -hmm. we didn't necessarily revert to our old behaviors. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, a lot of people don't get out as much anymore. They're not seeing face to face. Right. Do you think that part of the problem with mental health is that we've substituted face-to-face, -face, this right here, with too much virtual interaction and thought it was an, a one-for-one -one substitution? I think it was necessary to keep the communication going with the vir with the virtual setting. However, when we start to get back into, it's almost like let's get back to normal. But right. what is normal now? So yeah. we're trying to find our balance to what's our new normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, it's problematic. We know that rates of, of depression actually increase the more you're on social media because mm -hmm. you're not having that face-to-face -face conversation. Uh, there's not a weekend that goes by that I don't sit down at a restaurant and I'll see a family of four and they're all four on their phones. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why did you bother to come out? Yeah. Because yeah. that's the point of you know getting out, having the experiencing and socializing. There's difference between um, you know taking a phone and using it for pictures and memories and that kind of thing but that face-to-face -face communication there's no substitute for that no. because it also when Veronica's saying teaching empathy it also tells you how you learn how to read somebody mm -hmm. so the nonverbal and the verbal cues which is even more important um, since about one in 54 kids now are on the spectrum the autism spectrum and mm -hmm. and so that is already a skill set that they may not be as good at as other children and so yeah we've got to set a better example um, it, part of what I didn't share with you is I used to be a, a baton coach and a and a and a uh, dance coach many many years ago. Um, and the parents, after sending them with me for a couple of weeks, they would say, "Well, they're not on their phones during 
you know, our eating time. And I would say, because that was an expectation of mine. If I'm going to spend two weeks um, taking your child, then I expect when we're sitting down at a restaurant that we're all communicating. And we had a great time. And mm-hmm. so I think part of that is putting those expectations out there, but also modeling what you want as well as a parent. What is, uh, and you talked a little bit about conflict resolution, and obviously there's, people are having difficulty you know, resolving conflict these days. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we can see in, in crime rates and things going on. Mm-hmm. What, what, how, how does a school try to impart information or teach children how to resolve conflicts without violence? How, do, how, how, how is that done? Um, we're actually looking at starting restorative practices, which repairing relationships, figuring out what what was done that was wrong, um, and making things right, talking about those things that may affect the entire classroom, or having students to be able to communicate more and resolve issues with expressing emotions and feelings. So the restorative practices. One model. of the things that and John is the expert on this, and I, I'm not. But the the area of school bullying has had, you know, a, a lot of talk about that, and and for good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so wanted to, to spend some time on, on this, talking a little bit about the issue of school bullying, how it's evolved, uh, and and what schools or community can do, and parents can do mm-hmm. uh, to protect from that. Oh, there's not a day that goes by that I don't talk about school bullying. So um, that also is something that uh, that you're right. It stems from society in general. We have to be responsible. We also have to step in. And so, you know, when you think about one in five high school students, that equates to about 8.2 million high school students get bullied every year. And that doesn't, that's not elementary and middle when we know it's a lot more prevalent. So when we think about bullying prevention, um, really it's changing a system, it's changing a culture, it's it's taking things like school culture and climate, it's adding bullying prevention curricula, it's also looking at what we have state-wise because we've had some new enacted laws recently, um, but we also have to model what we want. So we have bullying prevention, we have character education, we have suicide prevention, we are adding um, uh, some, retor- some restorative practices, we also have trauma-informed care, but when you're working with families, many of them have experienced a lot of trauma. And so you're not starting always on equal footing. So when you think about bullying, um, we think about verbal, we think about physical, we think about social, like isolating. Um, we also think about, of course, cyber bullying. And, um, you know, my, my, I guess my advice to parents would be um, limit what your kids do in terms of cell phone interaction. Um, and also, let's work on teaching a difference between what's conflict, because conflict is normal. We don't always have the same opinion. We're not always going to agree with one another. Um, but bullying is repeated over time. Um, it's intended to hurt or harm. Um, it, the, the person goes back over and over again, even though they've been corrected for that behavior. And there's an imbalance of power. And so that's different from conflict where Veronica and I may not agree on what we want to eat or um, any other topic for that matter on any given day. We really do. But anyways, (laughs) um, that's different. But we can work those things Mm -hmm. out. Yeah. And uh, uh, when you 
come upon this situation where there's a either cyberbullying or some of the things you know that you read about I'm sure they're sensational but they're egregious uh, type of things uh, what are we doing to kind of protect our kids from from that what are schools doing to specifically kind of protect their children or their students in that regard and how do they handle those big issues like that do you want me to take it or you want to take okay. it? Okay. Well, I could, I could say from the school perspective, when we do receive a complaint for bullying and all complaints that are reported, it's mandated that we um, do the investigation. We interview students, parents, teachers, everyone involved. However, we have to determine again if it's conflict or if it's bullying. But we do have bully prevention curriculums where we do that. We talk to students. We have school expectations, classroom rules things like that so we look at where the problem lies or you know do you teach Richard Culotta who wrote digital for good I don't know if you read that book but he said we also want to teach our kids to be not to be bystanders but to be upstanders right, mm -hmm. right. where you even online you you show you say hey that wasn't nice mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. you 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 maybe attempt to comfort the person that mm -hmm. is being bullied so that you don't just stand back and quietly watch and say and do nothing right mm -hmm. right and we do have situations where if the if there's a bullying um, complaint that's made we do have students that will say hey this happened this is what we did and students protect each other they do a really good job and we are we care school university so we do a lot of helping each other and it's, it's very surprising sometimes how we see students who will stand up for each other you know I, I uh, one of the most humbling things that I have ever done in my life is to be an eighth grade Sunday school teacher for eighth grade boys <laughs> and and in that role, mm -hmm. uh, there's maybe two or three things you might be able to get through in a year. I mean, it's <laughs> difficult. But, but and, and from my perspective, I would, what I would want at the end of that year of Sunday school with those kids is that they took up the, what I talked about as the loyalty to the absent, which is what you're talking about and what you're talking about, mm -hmm. that a lot of this stuff can be stopped mm -hmm. if somebody would just stand up Mm -hmm. and say let's let's go it's enough mm -hmm. you know just one person standing up in a group like that can make a huge difference and i applaud it i mean that is i think the key and mm -hmm. day, day to day in the schools mm -hmm. is the kids are going to have to do it they, right. they're going to have to protect each other right. the adults set the example but right. doctor going along your lines dr dan Oveas, who is no longer with us but he was the preeminent longitudinal study in norway and that work has been taken up by clemson university and he had what he called the it really wasn't a circle but he called it the bullying circle and it was about moving those bystanders into action and shifting that balance of that circle where you had more upstanders mm -hmm. than you did have the people that were going yay or just even the silent yeah. that weren't really saying anything but they also weren't taking up for yeah. uh, the defenseless as yeah. I call it um, so so that's something and I'll and I'll tell you is in terms of our educators um, we have a new law that just went into effect as of January um, it's a mandate so there's some teeth to that law that if you're not taken care of or attempting to take care of, there can be there can be some consequences for you as an educator as well. I mean, like a, if a if you didn't take care of it, you were told you didn't take care of it, then parents or uh, would have some 
place to go. It's a recourse. It, so it's a reporting obligation on the part of teachers right. to uh, report bullying, cyberbullying. Mm -hmm. Just like with suicide prevent, just like with suicides or other mental health mandated issues, reporting. mandated reporting. We want to make sure that because schools see those kids probably a lot more often than even some of their parents do, especially if they're working a couple of jobs. And the, and I would think the teachers would be able to detect changes. They'd mm -hmm. be you know mm -hmm. they're at the front line. They're going to say, all right, he hasn't been right for the last two or right. three days and he's mm -hmm. really avoiding these kids over mm -hmm. here right right so and I think that gets back I was to look at the idea the the difficult idea to talk about which is talking about suicide and and um, in such a young age mm -hmm. but it happens mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, so what how are we teaching our teachers or helping teachers to kind of learn what the warning signs are, uh, what they should be doing uh, to try to uh, uh, pre prevent a catastrophe if they can. But talk to me a little bit about, you know, these numbers where I hear numbers like 50% increases and some numbers like that mm -hmm. for things like depression, suicide, things. Mm -hmm. you know, that's a bothersome issue. Yeah. It's extremely bothersome. And although we have mandated laws, um, which require so many hours of suicide prevention, bullying prevention, drug education prevention, all of those kinds of things, um, it, you have to take it past that. Um, first of all, I think you have to have heart. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I always do in trainings, I always say, well, first of all, when you're looking at someone's child, you need to say, what would I want done if that was that happened to be my kid? Right. What would I want somebody to do? How would I want them to intervene? How would I want them to respond to my child? Um, you know, news media, and I don't mean this wrong, oh, no. but um, sometimes news media tries to link the bullying and the suicide, that there's no other issues that are going on. And from a parent's perspective, I don't know what it's like because I haven't lost a child. Yeah. Um, but it's devastating, I know that much. Yeah. And you know, you're, you wanna figure out what, was, what else was going on. We know that in most cases there were some underlying mental health issues that were there ahead of time, but other things have exacerbated the problem, and bullying happens to be one of those. Um, it also, you know, kids who come from um, from trauma, um, it also increases the likelihood that they will be a bully or mm -hmm. or a victim um, and so we have to take a look really at the whole picture mm -hmm. um, and step back and figure out how are we going to address this as a society because we can't do it alone as a school system um, we you know parents can't do it alone it really does take a village these days mm -hmm. um, to raise a kid John, I want to ask you a question just to, for the mm -hmm. video cast uh, and you, t uh, you talked about this before and you've worked on this it's been important to you this, this cyberbullying issue uh, of today. What are some things that, um, that you can tell parents uh, that they need to do as it relates to this issue of cyberbullying and when they see it, when it comes, what do they do about it? Well, the first thing parents should do is sit down and have a conversation with their child before they're ever allowed to operate and, and interact in that space. Absolutely. So cyberbullying needs to be a discussion before your child enters cyberspace. And, you know, we always think of and fear our children are going to be victims. But we need to talk to them also about the behaviors that, that make you be a bully. Mm -hmm. So there's a conversation about what specific things are bullying, 
what specific things that I want you to do if you think you are being bullied and what bullying looks like. And then also talk about what do I want you to do when that other kid is being bullied. I want, mm -hmm. here's how I want you to respond and I want you to come to me mm -hmm. and talk to me so that I can then reach out to the school and make sure that they're aware and that other parents can get involved. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's one thing in my day uh, when we would have bullying and there would be five people on the playground. It's another thing when it's the whole school, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because they're connected. Uh, you know. And you can't get away from it. You know, you, you leave the playground. Mm -hmm. You don't leave the cyberbullying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't put children behind a, the wheel of a car and then teach them driver's ed two or three years later. <laughs> you want right. to teach all of these things before you give them access to that space. Yeah. Great analogy. Right. <laughs> and let me ask you this. I have three. This, I think this will be interesting, polling, polling this. Uh, but... When would you, if, if you were king, okay, when would you say, <laughs> what age should we be giving kids cell phones with access? Okay, so you just, you just added something. There are two types of phones. You have the good old flip phone, mm -hmm. and all it does is call, or you can get it where it just texts. Right. And if okay. you want to have the ability to, for your child to call you and say, I finished soccer early, come get me. Uh -huh. If that's what you want, that's a totally different device from a fully outfitted iPhone that has apps and internet access and all that other. So what most experts recommend is that your starter phone for your elementary age child, maybe middle school child, is just a simple flip phone. And huh. then those other things are introduced when they're age appropriate and your child is independently demonstrating that they have the maturity and the understanding to operate in that world. And even then, there needs to be heavy supervision that gradually you pull away over time when you realize that they know what they're doing. I wholeheartedly concur. Um, and especially, you know, a lot of parents are not aware that there are apps out there that you can hide the apps. And there's a whole different lingo that most people that did not grow up in the digital age have no idea what their children are talking about. So the first thing I would say is become educated mm -hmm. um, and then educate your children. But absolutely, if I had my way, we would have less problems, If especially if we just gave them flip phones um, and didn't have that internet access. But it's also not only that access, but it's also the messaging systems that they mm -hmm. do on their computers right. and their other, uh, you know. So we're connected these days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think um, we just moved to a entire digital society and oftentimes and even saying piggy bank on what you're saying we have learned to um, just block out human interaction because our heads are buried in the phone so yeah. it's exactly what you're saying and <laughs> you know I think a two-year-old just the finger starts working if you put a device because right. they've seen the concept and what to do and how to do but we're exposing our kids to things that may be harmful to them and they're they don't have the maturity to deal with those things and yeah and the other thing you just point out too is we as parents need to be role models mm -hmm. and I always say if you don't want your child to text and drive he can't grow up watching you do it right yeah, so you know 
creating your own good tech habits and mm -hmm. modeling them in front of your child throughout their childhood is one of the, I think, the most mm -hmm. important things you can do. Well, and knowing what's developmentally appropriate, whether you're talking about TV shows, whether you're talking about video games, it, it amazes me when I have individuals that come in and they're letting their six-year-olds play things like Grand Theft Auto and Streets of LA. You know, I have no problem with video games whatsoever, but just like with a movie, there's a reason why there's an R or a PG or a PG-13. Mm -hmm. um, it's a guideline for what should my child really be engaging in with their free time. Right. So before you buy or you purchase, can you go somewhere and do a little research and figure out, do I really want to expose my child to this and whatever it happens to be? And I send parents to Common Sense Media. Mm -hmm. You know, they will take all of the latest movies, games, everything, they review them and they say it's appropriate for a child this age. Hmm. You know. So that's what? Common Sense Media. Common Sense it's Media. It's a wonderful source, yeah. Okay. Well, this learned a lot, uh, John Ed. I mean, it was uh, a, f a fun and very educating uh, conversation uh, for me. Uh, and uh, certainly I think for those in the audience and we thank you for coming we thank you for what you do every day I mean we don't have enough counselors we don't have enough people doing what you do I'm sure you have a busy busy life uh, but we do appreciate uh, everything you do in the community in this issue which I think is huge uh, it really is and and something that we need to spend some time thinking about it so I, I, I usually ask people a couple of last questions uh, just to get a, a feel for it. We, we, um, we do this a lot because we want to see some of the things going on and highlight some of the things going on positive in our community. But let me ask you this. I want to ask you and you, what do you love about Shreveport Bossier? Why are you here? Why do you stay here? Well, I will tell you, Shreveport Bossier became my home as a third grader. And I will tell you, the community has been absolutely wonderful, not only to me, but also my parents um, and my fiance as well. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, there's a lot to do in Shreveport. I think people don't realize that we are connected with uh, the preeminent American Rose Center. Um, we are connected with the Smithsonian Institute, with um, the state fairgrounds. And uh, there's just so much to do in Shreveport and Bossier. We have so much to offer. I think we need to do a better job of maybe highlighting some mm -hmm. of those things. Um, what I would like to see is a little bit more activity for different ages of youth um, so that we can keep them home and, and, and hopefully they can come back and contribute. Um, so that's one of the things that keeps me here. Um, Louisiana, I tell my friends all the time, Louisiana is like no other state. <laughs> that's um, true. It, um, you know, you go you go a couple of hours to to the um, to the to the east. You have the Duck Dynasty, and you have a different <laughs> culture. You go mid part of the state where I worked in Ville Platte for a year. Um, totally different. You go to Baton Rouge, the capital, metropolitan. New Orleans is an entity all its own, um, and we're a little bit more like Texas. But you can also escape to the larger cities if you want to see plays and other things. But we also have the Strand and all the other things that are here that I just don't think a lot of us take advantage of. So. I love Shreveport Bossier. Super. <laughs>
All right, that was a lot. I'm born and raised in Shreveport, um, and I love what I do: school counseling, mental health work, and I feel like it's a it's an opportunity for me to give back to the students and the community where I grew up at. So I enjoy doing what I do. Super. So it makes it. And the last question is uh, for you to impart, and you've already imparted a lot of wisdom, but to to add to what you've already imparted. Uh, words of wisdom that you have for students, parents, or community. It can be anything. What words of wisdom would you like to tell others? You want to go? Okay. Um, <laughs> as it relates to being an educator, I feel like educators, parents, and the community, um, we are the nurturers of all students. We need to be more, um, more um, what's the word I'm looking for? We need to be more focus on what we do, modeling the behaviors that we want to see, and knowing that the relationship, the experiences that we give those students is going to benefit them. And if they are involved in traumatic or negative relationships, sometimes those um, traumas can last for a lifetime. Okay. Well, I would tell parents that we all are in the mode of growing and never stop growing, but also never stop being a kid. Um, you should have fun in life. We want them to, um, to engage with their kids because it's a short period of time and then they fly away. Um, but we have to model what we expect. Uh, nothing good happens overnight. It takes time. Um, so persistence and um, resilience would be the, the two uh, main focuses that yeah. I would have for parents. So persevere. I always say that nobody, um, nobody that does stuff uh, is never going to get criticism. So mm -hmm. the only people that don't get criticized are the people that do absolutely nothing right. at all. So take the criticism along with the, with the positive accolades and uh, go for whatever you believe in and keep persevering. Absolutely. Okay, well that was wonderful. Thank you all so much for joining us and thank you to all of you for joining us today for Education Checkup. You can watch this podcast on ktbs.com or wherever you've listened to podcasts. Hope you have a good day and that you'll join us next time.